Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, I'm Gary Steingart. Uh, do you want to live a literary life or do you want to escape a literary life? Well, check it out first uh, at Books and Books with Mitchell Kaplan and me on The Literary Life. Yeah. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Welcome to The Literary Life. My guest today is Gary Steingart. Gary is the author of Lake Success, a novel. It's his newest. And I think Gary's been here for just about every one of his books. Every single book. Yeah, five books. And five we've books. loved having Gary at Books and Books. It's always kind of um, one of the most lively events that we ever have at the bookstore when Gary's in the house. He is, uh, all of you who know Gary's work know just how remarkably funny, smart, and perceptive Gary is. And this book is no different. In fact, Richard Ford says of Lake Success, in Lake Success, Gary Steingart hears America perfectly. It's faulty, it's poignant lament, it's boisterous self-loathing, it's heartbeat. Reading him sometimes makes me want to scream with recognition and with pure hilarity. Richard always knows how to turn a phrase. Yeah, Richard really knows how to write a, write a blurb and a book as well. But, uh, yeah, well I, you know, and you're the king of blurbs, And I'm the king right? of blurbs, so for me to recognize Richard's uh, blurbishness is, uh, is quite a compliment. Yeah. Well, I know we got you here. You've been on a long, long tour. It's how many days again? 87, of which this is day 33, so I'm still so you're, sort you're, of fresh. But You're here, it's kind of midday, know you're hungry, yeah. so you're in the cafe at Books and Books. Yeah. So Nicky's here, and he's happy to take your order oh, yeah. for whatever can you I, want. Uh, can I get your famous mahi-mahi tacos, please? Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm just going to have some water, and I think I'm going to try also... The grilled cheese sandwich. Ooh. And maybe give Gary a little of it. Sure. Hey. Gary, um, this, this is a brilliant book. Thank you. So tell me where it comes from. Well, it comes from a couple of places. One is this feeling I've always had that, oh my God, who's left in Manhattan? You know, is there anyone left to write about? Uh, all my friends have gone. They're all in Berlin or looking for work in Abu Dhabi or living in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Everyone, you know, the creative middle class is gone. So I started looking around and I realized everyone around me uh, works in finance one way or another. 
So I said, all right, since I have no other people to write about, if I'm going to write a book about Manhattan, it's going to be about private equity or hedge funds or investment banking and um, landed on hedge funders because they seemed like the, they had more hubris than, than anyone else. And, and Manhattan, you've, you've always, to me, been the writer that is almost most connected to Manhattan. I am over because, any of the other yeah, boroughs. Yeah, tell no, me, tell I mean, me why. I, I, I joke that I, you know, I can't afford to live in Brooklyn, so I live in Manhattan. Uh, now that's the case. That, right? that may be the case. Um, yeah, I, 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 I grew up in Eastern Queens, and Manhattan was the furthest thing from us, you know. Uh, and so getting there was kind of a life's work. Um, and finally, I, you know, I went to yeshivas in Eastern Queens, was uh, bullied the way one gets bullied in yeshivas in Queens, and then finally got into a high school in Manhattan, a kind of math and science nerd, international nerd school called Stuyvesant, and I went there, and that was, and I never looked back, and I just said, all right, going to get the hell out of Eastern Queens, Little Neck, and live in Manhattan. Now, Barry Cohen, my protagonist, like me, lives and grew up in Little Neck, and when I was a kid, we all looked at Great Neck as the promised land because it was great. You know, we were little. We were the smallest neck. And then there, I think there was actually a middle neck, too. But, but Great Neck was great. And the greatest part of Great Neck was a, a, a hamlet called Lake Success. And if you're, you know, a hungry immigrant kid, success in the name of a village, you're going to go for that. Good God. Well, and... and you know, for someone who's has never lived in New York, really, mm-hmm. um, that Queens Manhattan thing, there's so, definitely something yeah. about that that yeah. we don't understand. Queens is sort of like a dumping ground. You get you get to America. You know, you're an immigrant. You kind of end up in Queens, um, which is great, by the way. Some of the coolest parts. Manhattan is so sanitized these days. Everything's a Chase Bank or a Dwayne Reed or whatever. But Queens is funky still. You know, neighborhoods like Jackson Heights and Flushing still have still pulse with life, whereas we just pulse with money in Manhattan. So you know, um, I'm a huge fan of, of of Queens. Well, so your main character, uh, um, Gary. So. Where, what was the genesis of that? Where did he come from? Well, I decided that I would start hanging out with hedge funders, and they were nice enough to welcome me into their world. And, they, and how did you do that? How did you, did you go, did you know some, and then you asked no, to be introduced? Or? No, I, um, I knew a brilliant uh, financial journalist who was at Bloomberg at the time, now she's at Barron's, name of Mary Child, and she introduced me to uh, everyone. She knows everyone. But what I found was that a lot of these people read my works, um, some got my works, some wildly misinterpreted them. There were some fairly right-wing dudes who thought Super Sad was like, um, Super Sad True Love Story was like a kind of anti-socialism, anti-Obama screed, which I don't know how the hell you read that, but, you know, some people... So then they really loved you. They really they? loved me. I heard that it was on, that a bunch of tax cheats on the Virgin Island was using it for their book club, you know. <laughs> so I was like, wow, I'm really, really rocking it with the, with the point oh 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 one percent um... So I started hanging out with them. And, you know, look, I mean, what they were doing to the planet was not up my alley. But in the end, they were people like other people. They were just, you know, very messed up, very unhappy, uh, super competitive, unable to understand their families, their societies, their kids, their spouses, just moted off from all of it by wealth. Um, Trading all day, playing poker all night against the same people they were trading against. Um, constantly stressed out. The money at this point was irrelevant. I mean, how much money do you need? But the money was there to say, I'm right and you're wrong. It was this ultimate. And living like that, 
oh my god i mean it almost made me allergic to money like obviously i need money to you know keep my son fed and closed and keep a roof over our, our, our you know our heads but beyond that boy money just doesn't really do anything for anyone well the the money became um a um a marker for how successful they were exactly and that's all that it really became at some point yeah and a way to you know one one thing that a lot of them kept saying about each other was well biff here his mama never loved him you know and that became a kind of theme this idea that almost all of them came from fairly messed up families uh, I mean, look, most families are messed up, but this, these seem to take the cake, and many of them came from the edges of things, the edge of New York or Moscow or Naples. They were all kind of, well, the same way I came from Little Neck, Queens, you know, and to me, Manhattan was the big, the big uh, apple in the middle of all this stuff, the, 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 the goal. Well, and, and I think your, one theme that works throughout all of your work is the, um, is the exploration of family. Yeah. So that must have been something that really interested you because you, you turn this into really, it's not really about hedge funds necessarily. It's really about a guy who's trying to come to terms with his own family. With his own family, right. And so like many hedge funders, he said, well, I'm gonna have a, I didn't have a perfect family growing up, but God damn it, I'm going to have a perfect family now. So I'm going to marry someone with excellent genes. I'm really into getting the best gene pool going. So I'm going to marry a woman who's beautiful, super credentialed and smart, went to Yale Law School, uh, 28 years old, still in her prime. And she's going to give me three beautiful children. And on these children, I'm going to build a home for them uh, in the country. And it's going to have three sinks next to one another so they can all splash each other in mirth. And everything's going to be great. And then, of course, she has a kid. And the kid is severely on the autistic spectrum. He's nonverbal. And... Seema, who is his wife, also plays, she has every alternate chapter is Seema's chapter. And Seema is not as, perhaps, as awful as Barry is in some ways, or not as clueless as Barry is, but she also bought into this idea of everything being perfect. And now that she has an autistic kid, she takes care of him left and right. She makes sure he has the best services imaginable. But at the same time, she's dreadfully afraid of anyone knowing that her life isn't perfect. Um, And so she, you know, there's a line in there, which I actually overheard this line in a cafe um, near me in, in, in the sort of Union Square Gramercy part of Manhattan. And it was this, these two women were lunching and one of them were talking about another woman, let's call her Betsy. And she said, oh God, poor Betsy, uh, one of her kids goes to BU and the other one is autistic. And, and the line was so awful and so New York through and through this idea that one of my kids only goes to Boston University, then again to the Ivy League, and, and the other one is autistic, and it's these comparable things. And, you know, I mean, part of this book was sort of looking around Manhattan thinking, where, where am I living? You know, where all the values that I knew are gone, all the, the, the city of social workers and teachers is gone. It's all been replaced by this endless rat race, and the rat race is part economic, but more so social. And sanitized. And sanitized. Lo- and completely sanitized. And completely sanitized. <laughs> And so my goal was to write about these people but at the same time, not just, you know, make them horrifying monsters because I did meet horrifying monsters. In fact, I met people who you could see where the funding for places like Breitbart would come, you know, people who were who were touting eugenics theories way before Trump ran for office. You know, this was the fascinating part. Uh, they were already talking about, you know, um, Blacks don't have the protoplasm to succeed in their blood, and the Arabs are an invented nation. These were gazillionaires, you know. 
And I thought, oh, okay, the, 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 you know, like the Robert Mercers. Of yes, the exactly. These you were, know. you know, without naming who they were, these were people <laughs> right. quite similar to, to them. So I couldn't quite write about monsters like that. I, I don't think a book like that. I mean, for a nonfiction book, that, that would be a great topic. But for a fiction book where I want the readers to have some, you know, something in common with them. Um, so a family that's more difficult than expected is, is the common theme. You know, there, there's these notions of n- novels with murder. And they're really more character studies, and they yeah. just happen to have a murder. Yeah, in it. Oh, absolutely. And and I think of this as kind of a novel yeah. with Trump. Yeah. Although it's yeah. a real full-on yeah. character study yeah. of a guy who's struggling, yeah. and it's comedic as the way all of your stuff is comedic. Yeah. And it and in the background is everything that's been going on. Well, this was a huge question. So when I started the book, you know, I started writing it in June. Really started writing the first draft in June. I finished around December, and everything had changed. You know, and so the question was, uh, originally Trump was going to be this, like, ridiculous figure in the background, right? The subject of humor, because um, I thought this was just going to be a one-off, that he was going to lose, and the GOP would look stupid, and, and the GOP would also expose itself for what it really is as, as this party that could nominate a man who talked about grabbing women's genitals and, and all this stuff. Um, so originally that was the idea that it would be a backdrop the way, you know, you're making a movie about the 80s, a Rubik's Cube is in the backdrop or something like that. So the summer of 2016, of course, you have Trump screaming, you know, on your TV set all day long and boasting and stuff. But then, of course, things didn't quite work out that way. Um, and so I was almost negotiating with my editor about how many times we could use the T word, you know. And, I think we got down to 12 because I wanted like 18. She was like six. And there should be like a trigger warning on every page where because, you know, it's a question. I mean. Poor fiction readers, you know, they want escape, and here, here's, here's Trump. So yeah, but I would argue this is an escape. I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a road, it's a road trip as well. Yeah, and it's a, yeah. it's a glimpse into America Absolutely. to a large extent, Absolutely. because the the you know Gary, uh, uh, um, the main character goes off. And he's off on a yeah. Greyhound bus. Yeah. Yeah. And he decides to, just the way you were talking sure. about how people want to escape that life, yeah. he decides to escape. He decides to escape. He decides to look up his college girlfriend in El Paso, Texas. He goes all over the place looking for her. Uh, along the way, he gets into all kinds of adventures that, frankly, I got into all kinds of adventures, you know. Maybe right, so talk about the research on that. You actually went on I the did. Greyhound I went on the bus. Hound, or the dog, as we call it, uh, in June of 2017, yeah, and got off in September. It was eye-opening. I mean, look, I, I got on in June thinking, you know, Hillary's going to win. I got off in San Diego in September. I was looking at Toronto and Montreal real estate. You know, I was like, <laughs> shit, this is not going to work out as well as we think it's going to work out. You know, and it was very depressing. But along the way, people kept telling me she's not going to win. You're wrong. She's going to lose Pennsylvania. I was like, Pennsylvania? Are you kidding? Look at 538, you know. Look at that. And, uh, but they knew. They, these people in the interior of the country knew. And, right. and so you got the idea that people in the, on the coasts live very different existences. We're, we're very sheltered in a way. Uh, but when you're on the hound, you're sitting next to somebody who just left... The army, a mental facility, uh, a correctional facility, often still has the the band around their arm that shows that, you know, that, that demonstrates that. So it's, I met my first white supremacists in Louisiana. We're talking loudly about crucifying Muslims and Jews, and I am one of those groups, you know, and so... Um, well, talk, I, I've heard you talk about this. Talk about what was different about meeting white supremacists in the age of Trump's of Trump. new election. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I think the, the, we were, 
and Barry gets off the bus and he gets a New Testament coloring book to prove how non-Jewish he is, and I consider doing the same. Um, but we were in a, we were going through Grambling State University, which is a traditionally all a traditionally African American college, and there were students out and about. It was the summer, but there were still some students, and the white supremacists got really angry. You know, one of them said. Well, they got their universities, and one day we're going to have ours, you know. And I thought, <laughs> what part of Dartmouth don't you understand, right? I mean, white universities, what the hell is that? But what was shocking was that nobody in the bus contradicted them. And this was a bus that was primarily people of color and one Jewish guy, myself. Um, and we just pretended to be asleep. We pretended to look away. It was a real dress rehearsal for the way the country would go for Charlottesville and other things, you know, where... They felt would, empowered. They felt, they felt empowered. They were quoting Breitbart. They were talking about how much they liked Mike Pence. Um, they were... They kind of knew, even though the, the polls were showing otherwise, they knew they were going to be in charge in some way. And, uh, you know, and now the people on the bus are the people in the government, you know. Um, Stephen Miller has the same idea as those guys do. He's just... A little bit, you know, a little bit more coherent. A little bit. Oh, just a little. Just a little bit. And has a face that looks like a thumb. And all those things are, are a plus, I guess. Well, it's, it, you know, you, 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 you're quoted somewhere as saying, uh, maybe it was recently, you said something like, uh, America is becoming more like Russia. Talk a little bit about that what you mean by that's that. That's the big shock. You know, I mean, I wrote books like Absurdistan where it was very clear that I was looking back at the, the country that I'd left, the countries I had left, uh, the former Republic of the Soviet Union, and feeling like they were a mess, but they had this ability to maybe... Uh, ooh. I'm going to interrupt you. The food is here. Yeah. The tacos oh, and the tacos. grilled cheese. That looks good. Oh, my God, this looks perfect. Thank you. Ah, thank you so much. Mm. Oh, I'm going to bite into this. Mm. Oh. Oh, my God. Yes, books and books, tacos. Oh. Good. Well, good. Mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Thank you. Well. So America as Russia. I always thought we'd be more and more, that Russia would become more and more like America. Civil society, democratic elections, um, some version of free markets. But we became more like Russia. We became a kleptocracy, at this point run by an authoritarian figurehead. Um, there is, there's a party, Putin has a party in Russia, but it really all is all about him. We now have a party in America, the GOP, that's all about Trump. Um, the parallels are scary. It's almost like... Putin is the more, more clever crook, the one that, that Trump would aspire to. Because Putin maybe, you know, possibly could be the wealthiest man in the world. You know, that's what they say. That's yeah. what they say. And, and Trump is easily not the wealthiest man in the world. In fact, I think I've met people, hedge funders, who were telling me what a poor businessman he was and how he would come to loans for loans to some of their friends. And they would always say no, because everyone, everyone in New York knew he was pathetic. Yeah, and we all know. I mean, it's, it's not news, but we all know that... that Putin probably had his eye on someone like Trump for a long, long time. And he was dealing with people like Felix Sater and these direct uh, ties to the Russian mob scene that I'm sure is something that um, I, I don't want to say you're familiar with, but yeah. it's something that, yeah. you know, when you read about Russia, it's there and very clear. Well, it really was a kind of world's colliding thing for me. And I think my next book, which I'm just starting to plan out, but I think I have to address the 
this sort of, you know, this connection as, as somebody who grew up in the Soviet Union and now lives in America and seeing my own homeland catch up with me. I mean, I left that goddamn country to come here. Yeah, And now it's come to me. Let's talk about that. You were seven when you left. Yeah. And um, as we've talked about earlier, you moved to Queens. Mm -hmm. And what was it like? I mean, what could it have been like coming to this? What year was it that you came? It was 79. 79. Um, um, And uh, the country looked like science fiction. I mean, um, it was an advanced society by any measure than than Russia certainly was. Um, I remember the overpasses, highway overpasses. You were flying in a car. It was, to me, unthinkable. Um, that funny movie from that era is Moscow and the Hudson, and there's that great scene that really epitomizes all of how we felt, which is when the um, Robin Williams character goes into a store and he sees that there's 800 brands of coffee and he has like a heart attack because he can't... A country that has 800 brands of coffee is incomprehensible. He's like, chock full of knots, Nescafe, no, 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 no. And he just passes out. (laughs) What what was the catalyst for your parents uh, emigrating and bringing you here? Well, no. It was right before the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? So It was about 10 years before. And um, anybody who could get out, if you were smart... um, you did, and at that those years, there was something weird. There was um, Russia was having another bad grain harvest, as it typically does, and it and it needed some high technology, like colored TV sets and stuff like that. And so, Jimmy Carter stuck a deal with Brezhnev, where millions of tons of American grain uh, was exchanged for about fifty thousand Jews, of whom I was one. So we were known as the Grain Jews. Wow. Yeah. So I was exchanged for a baguette, if you will. Uh, <laughs> And your father, when he came over, what, what what was his profession here in the States? Oh, I think Russian Jews had only one profession, a uh, mechanical engineer. <laughs> and the women were all piano teachers. And that was exactly what And that's were, exactly what you know. they were doing. And so, uh, and he got a job pretty quickly at the Brookhaven Laboratory out on Long Island. Cool. And it must have been sort of like you were on, on, on the moon when, when you went to school. And, and I know it's, it's almost legendary that you didn't speak English when you went to school and, you know, you spoke only Russian and, and hung out there. And It took me longer than many kids to learn uh, English because at home we spoke only Russian. And the reason for that was my parents wanted me to keep my Russian up. And, uh, did you speak Yiddish at home no, as well? No, no, my Just grandma Russian. did, yeah. Um, but... That proved highly helpful when I was writing books like Absurdistan, obviously, because I could just drop into the place and speak speak Russian well. And um, so I'm I'm thankful for them for keeping that cultural stuff going. You know, it's interesting because my wife, as you know, mm-hmm. we've talked, is from uh, was born in Russia. Mm-hmm. Her parents came over, but in the '60s, right? And the right. language smart for her to leave them. Well, they left then, and she was only six or so. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but. They never really spoke Russian once they came over. They spoke Yiddish. Yiddish. Yiddish that's interesting. They decided, mm-hmm. I guess, for them, the experience was just so, you know, so horrible in terms of being there mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Yiddish was the language that they always spoke. What city did she come from? They came from, uh, they were in the Ukraine. Yeah, I was about to say because they, they were in you the said Ukraine. Yiddish. Yeah, is that more of I a. I could U- see more, especially if it wasn't a giant town, yeah. that, that would be the case because in Leningrad. You, it would be Russian that well, you'd be speaking. Yeah, and in fact, you wanted to hide all traces of... Particularly by that time. Yeah, yeah. when my grandma came to Petersburg, Leningrad, of course it was called, I can't remember the exact years, but I think it was during the Stalin years, and she um, 
she didn't speak Russian. She only spoke Yiddish and Ukrainian, which, of course, is related to Russian. But um, so she worked really hard to not just get rid of all Yiddish and, and Ukrainian, but learn to speak Russian without an accent that would reveal her. Well, peasant, and, uh, and yeah. ironically, her parents, my wife's parents, came to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And they were, I think, maybe the first Russians in Brighton Beach, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which obviously then became the big Russian uh, Absolutely. neighborhood. You're listening to The Literary Life. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. We're back. So you then went to Stuyvesant High School, then you went to Oberlin. Yeah, Oberlin, yeah, yeah. Why Oberlin? Why Oberlin? Were you you writing early? Were you writing in high school? Were you... Was that something you were doing? Oberlin does have a tremendous writing program, and that's where I kind of got my start in many ways, so I'm super thankful for that. But the reason I went there uh, was because... I was. I, I thought I was dating this girl. I wasn't sure I was, but uh, we held hands, which at Stuyvesant was considered dating. It wasn't a very sexualized school. And um, but she dumped me the day we got to Oberlin. She's like, "Ah, it's not going to work out." And I was like, "Oh my God! I'm, I'm in the middle of Ohio." I came just. To- I came for you. I'm just surrounded by hippies in Ohio, and <laughs> this is very sad. But um, but it did work out great. It really kind of oriented me toward writing books. Because were there some mentors that you had there? Absolutely, that, yeah. Who Diane were some Vril- of the people that... Uh, Diane Vrul, Stuart Freeberg. There's a whole faculty that was um, super supportive. And, and, you know, and being you know being a writer at Oberlin was this big thing. It was like, I don't know, studying uh, hedge funds at Wharton. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. It was no, the, Oberlin the, the, was... The highest thing you could do. Uh, it was great. So I'm very thankful I went there. Even though four years in that school is a little much. It's a very insular... Lots it's a small public. town, right? It's a small, Very town. small town. Everyone's stoned. You know, it's um, <laughs> takes a lot. Yeah. Did you head right back to Manhattan afterwards? I did. Yeah. Oh God, I was. Uh, I was. Um, in fact, I was about uh, sophomore year. I was about to transfer back uh, to, to NYU or something. And uh, but then I had my first girlfriend, and we talked about it, and we decided to stick it out for another three years. But it was tough. And junior year abroad, I went to Prague, which was became the basis of my first novel, the Russian debutante's right. handbook. And that's what got you into Hunter College as well, right? Yes. You submitted some of that novel to get into Hunter to get an MFA, is that right? That's right. And I submitted it, and Changri Lee, the, the great author, was there, and he said, he read the manuscript, 30 pages or so, and he said, I can get you a book deal. And he got me a book deal two weeks later. You, you know, got into the MFA program and a book deal. And a book deal, Fantastic. yeah. So the, so the other programs I got into were not offering book deals, you know. Uh, but it was very funny, and it kind of speaks to what the MFA programs are like, because it was, you know, I wasn't allowed to tell any of the other students that I had a book deal, because it was supposed to be, we were all starting out from the same place. So they hated my work. They were all saying how awful this is. <laughs> Even though this was exactly the stuff that was going to be published, you know, six months later. Um, and finally, they did find out, and they said, oh, no, it's great work. Who's your agent? You know, so MFA programs are, yeah, I teach at one at Columbia, and they're, you know, they can be. It can be interesting. How long have you been teaching at Columbia for now? Um, hmm. 11 years. Oh, it's been... What do you find? What's what's the... um, What's the... What do you get out of teaching? Is it it mentoring? Is Mm -hmm. it... Mm -hmm. And how has that in any way uh, focused your own writing, or has it? It's been great. I mean, look, you know, these... um, First of all, you know, writing isn't exactly, writing and reading aren't exactly um, things that people are dying to do at this point. You know, you may want to do um, 
TV or film or something, but writing short stories, that's a bit of a, you know. And so just having these kids there who are so fascinated by this stuff is, is wonderful. But also it's my chance to understand, you know, the youth of today. <laughs> I've always had young characters in my books, and, uh, you know, these kids are... They open their mouths, and I'm fascinated by them. I'm also fascinated by how they negotiate technology, you know, which was, was a theme for Super Sad True Love Story, of course. And um, it's interesting. Like, often they'll write stories where there won't be any technology, you know, and they'll try to set it in a time where people use pay phones or something like that. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing that. Um, is that just a sense of being retro and hip and that sort of thing? Or perhaps, is it- perhaps, but perhaps it's also like we still don't know how to write about technology yet. Yeah, no, it's so well, new that we're just mastering the idea. What does a page full of text look like? You know. Well, also, you know, you talked about people not wanting to necessarily read about Trump. Sometimes we want to escape technology as well, and uh, and and reading is one way of doing that. Often. Sure, uh, you know, Barry Cohen loves watches, and I, I also collect watches, which is a sad middle-aged hobby of mine. But you know, well, I read that whole New Yorker piece yeah, that I you wrote. That was a beautiful oh, piece. Thank you. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, for me, watches. And these are not digital watches? No, no, no. These are all mechanical watches. Some of them are very old. One is from 1945. The same watch that Barry's obsessed with, this, the Universal Genève Tri-Compacts from 1945. So it's just, this watch is, you know, it's uh, almost the same age as my parents. And, um, and you've got, how many watches do you own? I own there? 11 watches, I'm scared to say. But I'm stopping. This is it. I may even sell some of them and bring it down to five or six that I really love. But uh, but anyway, watches are kind of fu to digital to the digital sure. world. You know, they're clearly just machines. They require love and care. They're not disposable the way an iPhone or an iWatch is. They're, they're but even even with that, technology is something that you're pretty familiar with. I mean, I would say you are one of the most interesting people that I've found on Twitter, for instance. Well, thank you. And you have an no. extremely uh, uh, potent and, and fulsome Twitter presence. Thank you. Um, how do you negotiate all of that while you're doing everything else? Well, it, Twitter's been great for me. I mean, I have 600,000 followers of whom 300,000 are Macedonian bots, but I love my <laughs> Macedonian bots. You know, and I'm, I'm sad when they drop out. Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's, um, Twitter is a kind of town square and just like that Greyhound bus that I talked about where all the horrible people got up and the rest of us were silent, well, on Twitter we're not silent, but the horrible people have more of an influence than the non-horrible people. And I don't know if that's the way the algorithm is designed, I don't know how the system isn't monitored, but it's, it's often a very toxic environment. And during the election, um, I got my share of, you know, um, Holocaust ovens and whatnot thrust my way, and that also made its way into Lake Success. There's a chapter that talks about the trolls that are attacking one of the characters. Um, so I got a kind of front row seat to both the toxicity of, of, of social media and also and also the Russian influence. It was very clear that a lot of the people who were, you know, who were um, going after me were based out of the St. Petersburg Research yeah. Internet Internet Research Agency. Look, I just had a uh, I just had a, a thing with Facebook where they locked me out of my Facebook oh my account. God. And they said that somebody was trying to break into it. I had to change the password. And they said, you know, these three email addresses. One was from the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. One was from Iran. Yep. And one was from another city in Eastern Europe. So that just shows that you've made it. <laughs> I guess. When the, I guess. When but somebody in Moscow is like, oh, we got to we got to get, we we gotta gotta get, get this Mitch. guy. Um, got to get Mitch. Well, it's it's. Uh, 
you know, in terms of Twitter, I mean, I just recently was on your Twitter account and, you know, I mean, it's perfectly made for somebody with that kind of beautiful sense of humor that you have. Thank you. And you put things really in a sort of nice perspective. For instance, Senate Republicans hired a female attorney, dot, dot, dot. My skills as a satirist are clearly no longer needed. Isn't that true? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This whole, the last two years, I mean, where do you... How do you stop? How do you stop? I mean, every time Sarah Huckabee Sanders opens her mouth, it's satire. There's nothing but satire coming out of her mouth. There's no, no truth, no... I mean, it's all just... It's twisting of all the norms. Yeah, and it's a twisting of all the norms, and that's where you would go if you were writing a satire. Right. You know, and The Handmaid's Tale takes misogyny and takes it to its logical conclusion. You know, and um, and then to see a lot of it happening, uh, you know, it's just so we, sad. You know, and I have a little kid, and if I didn't have a kid, I would just be on some beach in Burma and just say, "I give up." You know, I'm just going to write my stuff and get away from all this. But I'm invested here now, you know, I got to, and, and just so well, sad to see young people grow up in this shit. I, I guess it was yesterday, was uh, yesterday, the day before, was National Voter Registration Day, and yeah. Gary writes, are you registered? I sure as heck am. Book the vote today and save civilization from an early collapse. Let's hope that that happens this November. I hope Absolutely. so. I hope so. And I'm, you know, because I spent half the year in upstate New York, I vote up there where it really does matter. And. I can't encourage people enough. Good God, people, please vote. It's it's all of us. It's, we're all in this, and um, we have to make a change. Well, Gary and I are speaking right on the eve of the uh, the hearings tomorrow in the Senate uh, committee with Kavanaugh, and then we just heard that uh, Michael Avenatti just had somebody else come out, and it's just shameful in terms of what what's going on in those. Well, in, in as those long as the hearings. Republicans have their female assistant, I think <laughs> everything's going to be okay. Who we determined, as you and I were yeah. driving in the car, yeah. uh, was is from Maricopa County in mm. Arizona, mm. which is where uh, Sheriff Trip Arpaio uh, uh, is from. So it's it's really almost like yeah. a it's almost like a bad novel. I mean, you couldn't really even make it up. You couldn't make it up. You would really it would have to be a novel where you would say that. The worst of the worst will have, will rise to power and have scant resistance to their rise, um, or that the resistance will be, won't count. You know, just the way the election didn't count. You know, you, you go back to what Homer Simpson called the electrical college. Um, our whole electoral college system is designed to mute the voices of urban dwellers and raise the voices of others. Um, the way gerrymandering, all this stuff has, has been working is we're not a perfect democracy anymore. I mean, I guess we're a republic, etc. But, you know, this is... Um, we're repressing the real will of, of the majority, which, again, brings me back to that bus where I'm sitting there and a couple of guys are running the show and the rest of us are pretending like it's not happening. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me as well is that, you know, in terms of, in terms of writers approaching this, it's so dire and so depressing that you can't really use the typical... Uh, black humor approach that you might take in something like this because it seems so extreme anyway I know that one of the uh, you know in reading in reading about you and hearing you talk and knowing you I know that you admire writers like Carl Hyacinth for sure, instance sure. who's yeah. able to take you know take it to mm -hmm. the extreme mm -hmm. and you know his comment was, yeah. his, his, his whole idea was always uh, you know when my editor asked me you know what have you done? You've taken it too far. And he always goes, well, here's the news story know, where that I know, came I know, from. I know, I know. 
And I have to say, you know, I mean, and Carl, you know, he's found his muse is Florida in a way. And Florida right. is um, it's a great state to be a writer in, I think, because everything is taken too far. You know, it's it's always, you know, alligator shares meal with Chihuahua and eats Chihuahua and runs for office with a Chihuahua. And I mean, you know, it's. It is. It's, it's great. It's. I love it. I. I really do want to retire here and do my. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Your. 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 Your desire of moving to Miami. I love and, uh, Miami. Yeah, and I love and Key West. Of course, I love as well. Um, I honestly, you know, so I retire in twenty years. My, my fervent dream is that there still is, you know, a Miami or at least a Miami Beach and. Because well, Miami Beach will be there, the but first, it may be a yeah. little bit more inland. Inland, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might not be right where it is now. <laughs> yeah, if we can bring Miami Beach to, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I've always loved this because I think for Russians, going to Miami is the... Um, oh. It's, it's where we want to die, basically. And, um, and Russians don't live that long, but my Aunt Dora lived in the old colony building in Boy, Miami Beach. The Colony Hotel. Was, the Colony Hotel, before it was even... I mean, Renovated. it was a crap hole. It was like yeah, yeah, there yeah. Were gigantic water bugs or palmetto bugs scurrying around. But I think she lived till 99, which, again, for Russians is like a monstrously long time to live. So I think, yeah, absolutely. So also, uh, since, uh, since uh, not since I've seen you, but knowing that this is important, you mentioned him earlier, and you have a son. Yeah. So what is that like? What has fatherhood done? How has that changed you? Well, it's enabled me to write about children, that's for sure. And my, my kid doesn't share a lot of things with Shiva, but um, he's... Being a parent kind of reinvents you. You're you're now a very different kind of person. Um, you're no longer your parent's son. And for the longest parts of my life, even when I was successful at things, I would always run a kind of parent check in the back of my mind. Uh, you know, like a, you know, there's a scene in Little Failure where my parents say something like, "Well, you're, you've got a good review in the New York Times, but on the internet, Misha from Mormon says you're a schmuck." <laughs> You know, and so that was always a sort of part of me. And now there's just not enough room for that because it's all about him and making sure that the best parts for my parents, their humor, their kind of openness, that all goes into him. But some of the more Soviet parts get left behind. I also felt, you know, being a parent that when you um, when you realize how difficult it is sometimes with, you know, yeah. maybe not with your four year old, but yeah. as they get older, yeah. Um, you sort of forgive your parents in yeah, many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you realize how how they had they got into it the same way yeah. we all did without any real instruction. No, one of the first things I, I you know when I was with I, when I went to Russia with my parents, I saw, um, you know, I saw how they grew up. I saw that my father was evacuated from the city during the siege of Leningrad, and the first his first memory was being strafed by a Luftwaffe plane. He was hiding under a railroad car. I mean, Hebrew school is pretty bad, but this is much worse. You know, and I kind of put things into perspective. All right, now a whole different, well, let's take a different tack. Mm -hmm. Television. Mm -hmm. You're doing a lot in television these days. I'm doing a lot, yeah. I'm doing, uh, so I just uh, was a consultant on um, the second season of Succession for a little bit. And I can't talk up too much about anything yet, but all the last sort of three books, I think, are slowly inching their way toward development. Um, Superset was in development for, for a big time, for a long time. And uh, I mean, ultimately, I think that, that Trump kind of did that, that version of it in because, I mean, the book was written in 2010. And uh, some of it, some of it, so much of it came true. You know, this, I mean, a crypto fascist society run by social media. I mean, yeah, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so we are now quickly redesigning it um, with a person I really admire, uh, uh, 
an actor who's really great. And, so, um, so tell me about the writer's room. What is it about? I the love the writer's room. room. I mean, you know, being a novelist is a pretty lonely ordeal. It's you know, you're, you're working. I work in bed. I don't even leave my bed. You know, it's uh, I sit there with my espresso and just hammer away for four hours. And I mean, there's parts of that I love. I, I, there's an introverted aspect to my personality. But the writer room where you're... These, these are really kind of like think tanks at this point. Um, so in a place like Succession, you combine people who can write about character as well, but who also have such a great knowledge about the world. You know, this, the Succession deals with a kind of Rupert Murdoch-like family. So you have to... No, it's been really successful. Yeah, really it's successful. been great. Yeah, and so, you know, and that's the... That's How many people at. are in the writer's room when you're there? Yeah, it could be anything, but... You so know, you were there for about a week setting, for, you know, setting the we plot lines We were working lines on the plot lines for the next season, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just... Just riffing with these people. Everyone's very funny. Everyone's, you know... It's... It felt like it belonged to everyone. Of course, there's a showrunner, but, you know, it felt like this belonged to the group, and that was that was lovely, and I really look forward to doing more of that. And the biggest, the biggest takeaway is just the collabor- collaborative nature of that kind of, of an art, as opposed to how solitary writing yeah, is. Yeah, but really. you know, writing about stuff like finance, Super Sad was about um, technology in a way. I mean, it's hard for one person with all the responsibilities to be like a... To gather all that information, you know. Um, whereas here, the present, you know, you, ha- you can just farm it out to somebody. Somebody can bring you whatever information. We had people come into the office who knew specific stuff about what we we're dealing with, you know. So it's um, for somebody who really tries to create entire worlds, you know, whether finance or technology or Soviet oil politics in Absurdistan. It, it is really helpful for me to um, to bounce it to against. bounce it around and stuff. I mean, I'll always write books. I love books, but you know, I, th- I find this very exciting and. I think, you know, we're sitting in a bookstore, but, but Netflix and the rest of them have had a um, huge impact on how smart people consume narratives. And the, the immediacy of being able to, uh, the, immediate, the immediacy with which one is able to sort of approach those narratives is pretty, pretty amazing. You can get it almost immediately. You can get it immediately, yeah. And, and the other part of it is, I think, that the negative part of it, I think, is that we, we are so, our attention span is so low because we spend the whole day on our phones. Work never ends these days. It's not like nine to five, it's forever. You know, your boss can text you anytime she wants and then um, you have to respond to it. So, and, and it's all information. You know, we're being thrown data packets at our eyes. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna open up a book that demands so much from you that demands even more from you? Or are you going to just throw on Netflix where the narrative is just as interesting, but at the same time, you don't have to have the same... It can be a much more passive approach to yeah, consuming it. most definitely. So that's why I think as, as we become more and more computerized, it becomes more and more difficult to, to find. It's almost a luxury. And, and many of the people... Maybe that's why many of the hedge funders, their wives, could, could read the works that I put out because the, especially their spouses were not that employed. Having this connection in so many different ways to things that are literary... Um, who do you think you're following these days? Um, who do you want to be following? I, I don't mean following. That's a wrong like on word. Twitter. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Like on Twitter. Like who, whose voices interest uh, you? You know, mm-hmm. a lot these days. Who well, are you? Who are you listening to? Who are you reading? Of, who are you? 
thinking about. I don't want to put you in that funny position of asking yeah. who you're reading, but well, I, you know, I spent half the year upstate, and we have some of the my favorite writers tend to congregate there. I mean, they've broken free of the surly bonds of Manhattan and have, have moved to these beautiful houses, you know, with plenty of acres and. Um, so uh, Paul Lafarge, for example, is a lovely, lovely writer. Um, I want more people to read him. He's, his last book, um, The Night Ocean, was spectacular, just very moving, very touching, very smart, very funny. Uh, Mary Gateskill is a perennial She's favorite. She's great. She's yeah. great. She never, she, there's no missteps with her. and She often haunts our northern woods up there. So um, um I'm trying to think who else I love. I mean, there's so many, there's so many great writers. Um, I, I love all the immigrant writers. Chang Ray Lee, my mentor. Um, uh, Jhumpa Lahiri is, of course, is always very interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I teach a course on immigrant writers. And, uh, um, so there's a lot of stuff happening. It's like, you know, I wish there were more readers for these writers, but the, the work is impeccable. Yeah, no, and and we're seeing more. We're seeing, at least in publishing, I'm seeing there, there's more of a... Um, there's more of a, a, a safe harbor for these writers yeah. now as well. I mean, they are being published. They are being published, yeah. Which yeah. is really great. Yeah, and people are hungry for something new, and, and, you know, you can't always get that out of Netflix. I'm always amazed that the, uh, you know, we actually saw a documentary that was done about your, um, about your blurbing, <laughs> <laughs> which was great. So tell me, where, where did all that come from? Well, as I said, people were very nice to me when I started out. Changre, people blurred me. People were very nice, and I said, I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to blurb every goddamn book that comes my way. Now, soon that became about 500 books. Um, so people are like, you know, I mean, people laugh at it like, oh, God, it's got a Steingart blurb. That means nothing. <laughs> like Rex Reed, like, right? Yeah, like Rex Reed, exactly. I mean, that's, that's pointless. Um, so, so then I decided to narrow it down to either former students of mine at Columbia um, people who are represented by my agent, people who deal with my editor, um, or people who own dachshunds because I'm a big fan of dachshunds, uh, or Ukrainians because I feel so bad for them that, you know, after what, everything Russia did to them. Uh, hey. So those are the five categories uh, to be blurred by me. Th that's as good as any other reason to, yeah, to but, do a blur. It turns out there's gazillions of people who fit into one of those categories, you know. A yeah. lot of writers own weenie dogs, so... Well, I guess, I guess if you're a writer out there and you want a Gary Steingart blurb, just make sure you have a dachshund. Yeah. I, th I think somebody told me I bought a dachshund so you would blurb me. I was like, Jesus Christ, just take care of this dog, all right? Because they have long backs. They need a lot of help. And the other thing you do better than anyone else uh, is your book trailers yeah. are the best. Thank so you. I make sure you do, if you just Google Gary Steingart book trailer, yeah. you will... You'll find James Franco. You'll find Ben Stiller. Yeah, Paul it's, Giamatti. I mean, Paul we, Giamatti. A, Rashida Jones has been wonderful. Uh, we, we got a, Mary Gateskill and, and Jay McInerney were in one of them. So uh, do you produce these? Who produces kind of, them? Uh, I used to produce them. Now I, I have someone do it for me. I just don't have the time. But the very first ones were me and a, a buddy of mine kind of made that. Now, was, am I wrong? But was James Franco in one of your classes? Yeah, he was in one of my classes. Yeah. So. He just showed up one day? Yeah, or? he was very nice. And, and then we did a second one where he's when I'm married to him. Um, That's right, I remember. Yeah, and I had to kiss him, and it was pretty good. He had very soft <laughs> lips, if anyone's wondering. Um, yeah, no, it's been fun, and it's, you know, again, I, like I said, I love the visual medium, so for me to do this, some writers are like, oh, what a chore, I have to write a trailer. But Look, for I have me, to it's say, the best part. I have to say, in this one, I thought you held your own acting-wise as well. Well, Ben Stiller was amazing. The, the idea is we run a hedge fund that's, that's we're slowly running it into the ground and, um, and that you can only be a white male from 14 colleges who plays lacrosse 
in order to um, work on our hedge fund, which pretty much is the truth of the kind of people that get to work there. And um, he was just an improv genius. You know, there was a scene where he's throwing a tennis ball around. He's right. throwing it between his hands. And he drops it. He's delivering this monologue about how hedge funds works, and he drops it. And if that happened to me, I'd be like, oh, my God, I was put a mistake. Let's shoot it again. But he just kept going, and right. he made it a lot funnier. And the theme is our hedge fund sucks. And, and he kind of interlaced that with I can't even catch a tennis ball. Right, you know? right, and right. so that's genius. I learned so much. Well, I've learned a lot from you. This could go on forever, and I hope that it will. And uh, thank you, Gary, for thank being so on the much. Literary always Life. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be here at Books and Books. And that was a great taco. So Thanks. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.